Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and happy 2016 to everyone out there listening. I hope that your new year is off to a happy and healthy and great start. And this is the first podcast of 2016, and we are starting the podcast out with just a truly amazing gift, an American icon, if you will, Ms. Gloria Steinem. Now, if someone told me a year ago that Gloria Steinem would be on my podcast, I would think that maybe they were crazy or they were just playing a cruel joke or trying to be mean or something. But here we are, the first show of 2016, Gloria Steinem sat down with me for like 40 minutes and we had a great conversation. She is so generous with her words and her time and her spirit, and it just comes through so naturally. And And she's just really, really nice. She's just a nice person. And, and it was just so great to sit down and, and listen to her talk about her new book, My Life on the Road. It was... I, I still, I've listened to, to this interview a couple of times already, and I'm still picking out little nuggets and tidbits that I missed the first couple of times. So I just want to thank Gloria Steinem for coming on the podcast because it is, it's just thrilling for me to have her on. And for those of you who do not know who Gloria Steinem is, she is a writer, lecturer, political activist, and feminist organizer. Uh, some highlights, I mean, she has... Uh, an amazing uh, life. She's lived an extraordinary life. Um, if you want to find out more about her, go to GloriaSteinem.com. I'll give you a little highlights now. Uh, she co-founded Ms. Magazine. Uh, her books include bestsellers, Revolution from Within, A Book of Self-Esteem, Outrageous Acts of Everyday Rebellions, Moving Beyond Words, and Marilyn Norma Jean on the Life of Marilyn Monroe. She helped found the Women's Action Alliance, a pioneering national information center that specialized in non-sexist, multiracial children's education. Uh, The National Women's Political Caucus, we talk a little bit about that in the interview. Um, She also co-founded the Women's Media Center in 2004. She was president and co-founder of Voters for Choice. Uh, The list goes on and on. As a writer, she's received so many awards. They're all on her website for journalism and writing. Uh, She graduated Phi Beta Kappa from Smith College in 1956. And then after that, spent her life on the road, which is what we talk about today. That's what her book is about. Um, She's been the subject of, of a couple of different documentaries, one of which is HBO's Gloria, in her own words, if you haven't seen it. Um watch it. It's on HBO Go. It's really easy to find. Um, and it, it almost gives you a little, of course, more history on her, but almost a history on the country, which is kind of what I felt when I was listening to her book. I was like, I grew up in this country, right? So how do I not know that this stuff happened? Um, so get her book, My Life on the Road. Listen to it. It's, it's actually told beautifully by Gloria Steinem and Deborah Winger, both narrate or read it. It was just amazing. So I highly, highly recommend it. And we're going to get to all of that in just a second. I just want to talk about what's on the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Community Board. So big, big event coming up this summer. It is the brainchild of Mike Eisenhart. He's a physical therapist in New Jersey. He's also the president of the New Jersey chapter of the American Physical Therapy Association. He is organizing a coast-to-coast bike relay race that just may break a Guinness Book of World record record. So 
what it's, go- what it's meant to do is raise awareness about chronic disease, which we know is out of control in this country. It's, it's nearly a $4 trillion market. That's a lot, a lot of zeros here, people. However, a lot of these chronic diseases are largely preventable. And one of the things that we know helps chronic disease is movement. So who are people who are really knowledgeable about movement? And that's physical therapists. So we believe the best way to help most people learn about movement is to experience it, to try the health benefits that are gained with regular movement. And if you're not regularly moving, go to your nearest physical therapist and they'll be able to help you with that. So rather than talking about it, he is organizing an event to do it, to help the American public set the heavy burden of chronic disease to the side for a while, and he's calling it to literally free the yoke. So uh, it's going to be kind of a big party. There's going to be uh, riders from coast to coast. Not one rider is doing all the whole thing. At least I don't think so. That's kind of crazy. Um, but what they're doing now is they're currently recruiting riders, supporters, and PT clinics that can act as both pit stops and party stops as we try to set a world record for the largest bike relay in history. So come join your PT friends and colleagues from across the country as we do something amazing. And to help us free the yoke, you can learn more at freetheyoke.com. And that's Y-O-K-E. Or you can find them on Twitter at free, at free the Yoke. So again, brainchild of Mike Eisenhart. Sounds like it's going to be a pretty amazing, fun cross-country relay race. And let's try and break a Guinness Book of World Records record. Okay, last thing. Um, once the music starts, you'll notice it's a new musical uh, intro to the podcast. And I'm thrilled to say that it was composed especially for the podcast by Brian Quinn, lead guitarist of Candlebox. So I want to thank Candlebox so much for doing this. Again, who would have thought? Um, they are coming out with their first studio record since 2012, and it drops April 22nd. So if you want to find out more about them, uh, you can find them on uh, Twitter and on Facebook at Candlebox. So go check them out. They've got their first record coming out uh, since 2012. And now we're going to get to Gloria Steinem and to talk about her book, My Life on the Road, which you can find on audible.com. Audible is a sponsor of this podcast. So if you would like to get a free download from Audible, which you can download Gloria Steinem's book, My Life on the Road, and a free month from Audible, then go to my affiliate website, website, which is audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. They have 180,000 different titles to choose from. So go on. It's free. You get a free book and a free month. No obligation needed. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. And enough talking. Let's get to the interview with Ms. Gloria Steinem. everyone. Welcome to the podcast. And I am sitting here today with author, organizer, activist, and all around really nice person, Ms. Gloria Steinem. So Gloria, thank you so much. And welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. No, thank you. And thank you for the nice person part. 
Oh, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, and so, to, you know, I'm, I'm so happy you came on. You just came out with a new book uh, a couple of weeks ago called My Life on the Road, which I listened to, um, and it was really beautifully narrated by yourself and Deborah Winger. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about the book and, and your thoughts on it and, and maybe also some uh, thoughts on, you know, where women are today and, and what our biggest challenges were. But, but let's kind of start in the beginning. Um, so the book, it's, I know that you had said it's not really a, an autobiography or a memoir, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's really an on-the-road book. And all the things that have to do with the road, uh, but it's not about uh, I don't know relatives, health, uh, affairs, <laughs> and other things that might turn up in a memoir. Right. It's it's all about your life on the road, which which started at a very young age. So I was wondering if you can sort of talk about how the nomadic nature of your childhood kind of influenced your life on the road as an adult and just sort of influenced you in general? I, I just accepted what was uh, kind of an unusual childhood. Uh, that is, I didn't go to school very much at all until I was about 10. And we were living most of the time in a house trailer, traveling from Southern Michigan, where my father had a little summer resort to Florida or California in the cold weather. So fleeing to the warm weather. Um, and that's just the way life was, although I did realize from going to the movies that other children went to school and lived in houses. So uh-huh. I, I had some desire to do that, but you just uh, accept what your childhood is. I kind of thought that I had rebelled against that childhood because I actually have a home, which my father didn't have in a way. And I am not in a house trailer, but when I started to write this book, I had to realize that that kind of childhood had given me a feeling of at-homeness and comfort on the road and with unpredictability, Uh, and that I really was living it out as a grown-up, but in a different way. Right. So instead of traveling around uh, by car and traveling across country, you know, you're in trains and you're on planes. And and the thing that I found interesting is that some people would have taken that childhood and said, I'm done traveling. Like I'm settling down. I am not going anywhere. And and you really kind of continued that, that on the road mentality. Well, I did continue it, but I, I kept thinking it was temporary. And actually, I uh, still continued to feel sorry for myself. I used to walk around the streets of New York looking into lighted windows, thinking everybody has a home but me. Mm. (laughs) So it's amazing how long it can take before you realize that you have learned something from your childhood, that you've transformed it. It's not exactly the same, but you feel at home there, that it's a positive thing. And... When, you know, in listening to the book, and we sort of said earlier that this is sort of a road trip book, and from childhood up through, for decades, you've been traveling, you've been on the road. Has there been one trip or maybe a few trips that really stand out in your mind as something that was really transformative for you? 
Well, certainly, uh, in retrospect, going to India and living there for two years right after college was transforming. Once again, it took me a while to understand exactly how important it had been, but it taught me that the rest of the world often lives quite differently from what we see here. It taught me uh, the basic rules of organizing from the bottom up, the importance of... uh, sitting in circles, telling our stories, talking to each other as a communal experience and as a way of, of growing and, and transforming. I experienced that in India. I didn't realize that it was relevant here because I thought this was such a different country. Mm-hmm. But thanks to the social justice movements, whether it was against Vietnam or Um, the women's movement or the civil rights movement, you see that those movements were born in the same way of people sharing experiences, telling the truth, discovering they're not alone, and that together they can rectify uh, what they are communally experiencing. So I did finally realize that what I'd learned in India was very relevant here. And that concept of the talking circle was certainly something that weaved through book. Yes, yes. and I I do think it's fundamental because, you know, we haven't been uh, sitting around campfires for hundreds of thousands of years telling stories for nothing. It's part of our uh, cellular makeup, I think, that we are communal animals, that we um, need to both tell our unique stories and hear others and realize the commonality so that we have a community. Uh, it, it, I, I think we long for this. The, the web can satisfy some of it and it's good that we can go outside the traditional media and advertising supported media and find each other's stories, but it's not the same as being together with all five senses. That's still different. And, how did that concept of, of a talking circle, like you said, being present and being there with all five senses, is that what sort of started you on your journey as being an organizer <clears throat> and as part of the women's movement? I guess well, it's right? really the way it's, it's the way movements start, whether it was in, say, black churches in the South with uh, people testifying about their experiences or uh, women sitting in basements and living rooms uh, telling what they thought was a unique experience and discovering that other women shared it. We used to call them consciousness raising groups and they still exist, but sometimes they're called book clubs or uh, support groups. But it, it, it is every every movement I know of has come out of that kind of talking circle shared experience. In the case of the Chinese revolution, it was called speaking bitterness groups, but it seems to be universal. And and that's much different than having the person up on stage and everyone sort of facing in, in rank and file. It, it sort of sets off more of a hierarchical Yes, yeah, so no, obviously, you know, one, one person looking at an audience and the audience looking at each other's backs is clearly a hierarchical experience. It's good because we are at least there with all our senses, but um, it is a one-way street. And the the best part of 
becoming a speaker and organizer to me is the part after whatever the talk or lecture is when it's free form and people can at least pretend they're sitting in a circle and stand up and say what um, they want to be heard or they want help with. And I, I mean, that's, and I think that's very true. You know, I go to a lot of different conferences, physical therapy and otherwise, and it's always the talks that happen outside of the formal talks where, <clears throat> where things seem to happen and, and ideas are, are, are more readily accepted. Mm-hmm. And no, well, that's interesting. So at those conferences, is there a way to build that in so that it's uh, understood that this is important, that there be free form talking circles? You know, I, I, I think there is a way to build that in. I would love to, to kind of help with that at the next conference I go to. When I went to the TED Med conference a few years ago, that was built in. So you had your formal TED talk and then in what they called the hive, they had all these small circles of talks based around hot topics in, in the world of healthcare. Mm-hmm. But it was great because when you sat down, the person next to you was a doctor. The person across from you was a researcher. There was a student. There was a physical therapist. But there was no one higher or lower than anyone else, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, that makes that You've just put your finger on the whole secret, I think, you know, that, that we are uh, meant to be as I think of it, it's the shortest way I can say it, linked, not ranked. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in those circles. Yeah, and I, there is, I think there's a quote in the book, and I'm probably going to maybe screw this quote up, but where people of lesser power uh, need to have their voices heard and people with the power need to listen. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Well, I think, it, and it's, um, it's sometimes if you have been... Uh, if you traditionally have had less power or little power, it's sometimes as hard to remember to talk as much as you listen as it is for people in power to listen as much as they talk. Right. Because if we have had less power, we become used to hiding and we're afraid to come out from our shell. Mm -hmm. But a very simple path to kind of visceral democracy is just to try to remember that. You know, if you're in a situation where you might be seen as having more power, listen as much as you talk. And if you have less, talk as much as you listen. It, it, it's a kind of, it's very simple, but it's quite miraculous. And, and I would think difficult with certain, at certain times or maybe with certain people. I think you have to be really present and conscious of what you're doing to be able to realize that. <clears throat> yeah, no, you, you have to um, you have to want to learn or want and want to express mm-hmm. both in equal in equal parts. But it is a very helpful, simple guideline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and when so let's kind of we're sort of moving moving along here through the book, but let's talk about probably what you're most known for would be an activist and organizer within uh, the equal rights movement and women's movement. So how did that happen? Uh, Well, I got born female, so it was fate. (laughs) (laughs) But also, um, I kind of caught the idea 
of of women's uh, full humanity from from other women, and also from the civil rights movement. You know, the whole idea of equality is quite contagious. And if one group starts knocking down barriers, the other is likely to uh, catch the idea too. Uh, but it it took a while because we are born with the idea of or we're born into the idea of masculine and feminine roles, which means the dominant and the passive paradigm, which just is not true. It's, it's unnecessary, damaging, hurtful, and it sometimes even turns to violence. And, you know, I think coming, so for, for me, I grew up, uh, I was born in the 70s, and growing up, I never really experienced the same things that you did or or the generation and a half before me i guess and the th- well it's 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 true that that we grew up at different times mm-hmm. but um you also did not grow up in a time in which women were as safe in the street as men were mm. or in which men raised children as much as women do so the basics are uh, different by degree, but they haven't disappeared. Mm-hmm. And it, looking back, so the, the beginning of the women's movement and then as that progressed through, what was the, the most challenging part for you being sort of a leader or, or quote-unquote face of the movement, which I heard several times, you know, watching kind of news clips and movies and things like that. And did you at the time feel the pressure of that? No, because I just don't believe it. I mean, there is no face of a movement by definition. A movement is a lot of people, not just one person. So, you know, I never, I never believed that. Um, I just uh, realized that that was a hierarchical pattern and what we had to do was to try to break it down. So I tried and I still try not to appear by myself um, to uh, pass invitations to write or speak on to other people, to create a group whenever I can. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I mean, because the movement by definition is, 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 is not one person that's very damaging to to think that it is on the other hand i am what they would have called in the 1930s a media worker so Mm -hmm. to some extent it's my job to use the media and that means it's my job to uh, bring attention to issues and people and facts that might not otherwise get attention yeah and how you know, through so this has been decades of of your life and of your work, being an organizer and and an activist. And how how can you go through all that you've gone through and remain, I, in my opinion, non judgmental, not cynical after years of everything? Well, you know, but that's. Earth. I mean, how can I? I mean, of course, sometimes we're all judgmental, we're all cynical, but. It, it I've seen change, you know, mm-hmm. when this uh, change began, we, the people who advocated it were regarded as crazy and going against nature or right. God or, or, rabble, or Freud or somebody, or, you know, and now all of these issues are majority uh, issues in terms of support, even though we haven't realized them completely in terms of practical choices. Nonetheless, we agree that pay should be equal and that parenthood 
should be uh, both men and women, and we should have parental leave, not just maternity leave. You know, there's there's majority support for uh, what once was regarded as bizarre and even unnatural. Mm-hmm. And what do you think now? at this point in history is the biggest challenge for, for women or not even for, for society, right? Because we're all part of it. Well, you know, the, the biggest challenge is the challenge that the person who's listening to this podcast right now feels uh, in her life or in his life. You know, it may be trying to uh, be truly equal parents. It may be uh, striving for, equality in pay or treatment in another way. Uh, It may be uh, avoiding violence or the biased, the sexist and racist uh, treatment of of cops or other parts of the establishment. You know, whatever it is in the life of the person who's listening is what is the the most important. We're the most effective when we work on what we know the best, care about the most, is hurting the most, you know, mm-hmm. and, and find other people who share our experience and, and go forward. If, if we add up sheer numbers, uh, violence against females is probably the single biggest, most immediate danger because it's now so prevalent um, in all of its different forms, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's son preference that creates a daughter deficit or it's domestic violence in this country or sexualized violence in war zones or sex trafficking. They're all together. It has now created a situation in which there are fewer females on earth than there are males. And that seems to be a first. Wow. Um, And if we, if we understand that this, Violence is is really all about controlling reproduction and therefore controlling the bodies of women. <clears throat> it is what we are most likely to see or experience first, and it it tends to normalize other forms. Uh, we we come to believe that one group of people is born uh, to dominate another; that there is a, a hierarchy. So it is the biggest indicator of all forms of violence. It should be the basis of our foreign policy, for instance. Uh, if, we, <clears throat> if we look at the terrorist groups, we can see that, that they have the most polarized gender roles. And if we look at the most peaceful and democratic groups, we can see that they have the least polarized gender roles. So uh, the more we understand this, the more it can help us in every area of life. Yeah, and and I remember you saying, I think, it, I don't know if it was in the book and, and also in an interview that the societies that have more violence against women are societies more likely to be involved in, in violence against other countries and war and things yes. like that. Yes, yes, and that, if anybody is, is needing to prove that and with all kinds of uh, respectable, definitive studies of other countries, they can look at a book called Sex and World Peace by Valerie Hudson and other mm-hmm. scholars, <clears throat> which was published by the Columbia University Press a few years ago. And that is absolute, definitive, respectable proof that violence against females is the biggest indicator of internal 
violence in a country and also of whether or not that country will use violence against another country. Yeah, and and so within a country, let's say even here in the U.S., really looking at the violence against women and how can how can we as a society change that can bring a lot of <clears throat> well i mean you know when the when the women's movement began there wasn't even a word for domestic violence really it was just considered normal yeah there was called life basically <laughs> and they and the uh the cops considered it successful if they got the victim back with the criminal you mean if they got whoever the the woman? Yeah, back if they the got the, the so-called family back together again, that was their idea of success. Whoa. So you know we've we've come that's come a long way a distance from that, yeah. but even now we don't uh, seem to use the fact that police families are four times more likely to experience domestic violence than the families in the general population. So arguably, if if we were more aware of that and both uh, sifted out people who had been domestically violent and also mm-hmm. helped them to cease being yeah, violent of in that way, we wouldn't have the degree of racist violence that we have from police mm-hmm. uh, because they're it's all about supremacy crimes. I mean you know, beating or killing somebody in your family or beating or killing somebody of a different race is not something that gets you money and power for the most part. It's, uh, it's, a, it gets you supremacy. It gets you a feeling of control. Mm-hmm. It's a supremacy crime. So yeah. the, the, you know, domestic version is the biggest indicator if you do it inside the house, you're also likely to do it outside, outside the, house. the house. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense to me. Um, and and sort of getting these people that the help that they need, like you said, so they don't continue to do it. Mm-hmm. But the, so far, we you know, if you if you think of, for instance, about remember the case in, of Zimmerman who killed Trayvon yeah. Martin in Florida. Yeah. yeah. All right, he had been previously convicted of violence against women. Hmm. Uh, that was not even admissible in his trial of uh, after killing Trayvon Martin, much less was it uh, taken seriously at the time as a predictor of other violence. If it had been, Trayvon Martin might still be alive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, we, we need to make these connections between and among uh, kinds of violence that we now view as disconnected. Right, right. No, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And and if that's something that, you know, can help women, children, people, society as a whole, it just makes a lot of sense to have that on the agenda. Yeah, I I fear that that the various social justice movements are still viewed as if they were separate. And they're not separate. They're all Mm -hmm. connected. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I had an interesting conversation with a woman who's uh teaches sort of leadership skills to students, to both male and female students in healthcare and in the physical therapy world. And we were sort of talking as to why in so for instance in physical therapy, there we're about 
close to 70% women are physical therapists, which is a huge part of the population. Mm-hmm. Yet we still, you know, just like the rest of society, we're still making less money than men and we're also in less leadership roles. And so we were sort of talking about why that is. And one thing that she sort of talked about was the sort of horizontal violence, she called it, sort of women-to-women violence, or not violence, physical, but you, you know what I mean. And I was wondering... I, I know what you mean, but and, uh, and it's a problem, but it's not the basic problem, mm-hmm. because those women are not determining the pay scale. True, true. So the basic problem is that we are not complaining and saying, look, I'm not coming to meetings anymore if... Uh, 90% of the speakers are men, if, you know, it should be at least 50-50 women mm-hmm. and men. And if it reflected the profession, as you point out, it would be yeah. a majority women. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have a feeling that after this last meeting that I was at a few weeks ago, I think that's going to change a lot for next year. Mm-hmm. Because no, I, well, that's great. I yeah. mean, so that's exactly, you are part of a movement there. I mean, yeah. you know, well, it's, it's exactly what needs to be named and changed. Yeah. And I think it, it was the women certainly there noticed it, but so did the men. Yes. No, there are many men who, who yeah. don't want to live in that kind of world either. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that was um, a really positive thing to, to come out of that conference for a lot of people. Um, and one thing, there is one thing I have to say, there is one thing in the book that struck me as kind of unbelievable that that you have uh you had difficulty i don't want to say fear but maybe trepidation with public speaking ah no not just fear and trepidation terror <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't even believe that <clears throat> no it's really uh, it was just true you know i had chosen to be or tried to be first a dancer and then a writer. And those are two professions in which you don't have to talk. That's true. So I definitely didn't want, did not want to talk. And if it hadn't been for the women's movement and all the excitement of it and the inability to get articles published about it, I wouldn't have turned to speaking as, as a, in desperation as, as a way of uh, being active. I'm very grateful I did, but mm-hmm. it wasn't my natural way of communicating. Which is crazy. And I know, you know, in the book and, and in things like that, you, you said when you first started speaking that you kind of went out on the road with Flo Kennedy. Yes. Right? yes. First, like first Dorothy Pittman Hughes and then Flo Kennedy uh-huh. and Margaret Sloan and Jane Galvin Lewis. It, it, because I, I couldn't do it by myself. Which is also, I would say, an argument for uh, follow, following your fear toward progress, because I couldn't do it by myself, so I did it together with another woman, and therefore we got audiences together we wouldn't have got separately. Yeah, and I had uh, a patient of mine who said she she had shown me a picture from, I guess it was from the 60s or the maybe the early 70s, and they were on a, a beach in Fire Island, and it was at an event organized by Flo Kennedy. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, Flo was uh, loved Fire Island and made a lot of trouble there, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she showed me the picture, and I was just like, what? That is crazy. Yeah. What a coincidence. Um, yeah, well, maybe maybe because she was uh, there in the summertime, she didn't have her Aussie hat on, which was part of her wonderful 
quasi-military elegant Uh uh, (laughs) self. (laughs) Yeah, and I just, you know, it's, it's amazing to me to think that, you know, sort of my mother's generation and that that there was so much i i don't want to say upheaval at the time but but there was mm-hmm. um and so much progress and camaraderie being made and it's it, i guess when i look back on on the 60s you know you think of that sort of mad men time where you know a woman could well, yeah mad men was really the the 50s and it's carry over into the 60s yeah but when you're describing to me going to a conference as you just did mm-hmm. and you're noticing who's speaking and who isn't and who's making the decisions and who that's exact you're it's exactly the same thing you know, know you're having a, a an aha yeah of consciousness and you're going to do something about it yeah and it it definitely it definitely was i mean to to look around and and be like wait a second where are all the ladies at yes what's, right what's happening here i mean right. what's going on i just didn't understand it so hopefully yeah hopefully something good will come out of that for next year's conference mm-hmm. is definitely the hope well, it, uh, if you could probably get beyond hope to certainty, if you mm-hmm. just said, uh, here are 50 important people who are not coming unless you change. Which which I think can happen. Yes, right. It's not yeah. hard. It's not hard. You're right. It's not hard. It's very easy to get the attention and, and to kind of make that shift in mind mm-hmm. for people. And... and I don't know, maybe people never noticed it before, but it was very, very stark, I felt, myself. Mm-hmm. Well, it, especially because the profession is yeah. majority female. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, it was crazy. Um, okay, so we've got a little bit of time left, but there's one part of the book towards the end of the book that um, I think I said I was listening to the book and on the subway sort of literally fighting back tears. I think I might have had to put my sunglasses on in the subway and be one of those people on the subway. But in, in talking about your, your friend, Wilma Mankiller, who was the principal chief of the Cherokee nation. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to talk a little bit about her. Cause I found her to be a really remarkable person. And uh, uh, again, with like other things in the book, I never even knew about her, but she was seemed like such an important or seemed she was such an important figure in the country and I didn't even know that she existed until mm-hmm. reading this book. Well, it's, you know, we don't uh, read the history of this country <clears throat> when people began. We read it when Europeans arrived. So we don't know that there were at least 500 very advanced, sophisticated group language groups here, civilizations arguably way more advanced than the Europeans. But uh, about 90% of them were killed either by warfare or disease. Mm-hmm. They're still here, and the and that's their note of pride. You know, whether they will say to you, "We're still here." And Wilma Mankiller, who was the elected chief of the Cherokee Nation, <clears throat> was especially good at restoring people's sense of pride and independence not dependence. Mm-hmm. It's what made her a great leader. 
she really should have been president of this country in a in a just world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was, you know, funny and kind and wise and, you know, everything everything that you could possibly want. If you asked her about her name seriously, she would explain that it had been a title for someone who protected the village. So it had been white man killer, but she dropped the white. If you asked her uh, not nicely mm-hmm. about her name, she would say, I earned it. That <laughs> 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 she, if she was a truly a great woman. And if people are curious about her, there is a wonderful feature film uh, called The Cherokee Word for Water, uh, which you can find online. And that will give you an insight into her life and her her wisdom. But because of her and other uh, friends in, in Indian country I made from wandering around, I, mm-hmm. I really began to at least glimpse what I didn't know, what mm-hmm. I didn't learn, and uh, got very angry that we don't learn. <laughs> you know, we were sort of taught that this was a empty country or an undeveloped country mm-hmm. when Europeans arrived. Not that it was way more advanced in agriculture, in uh, various kinds of healing sciences, uh, that there were uh, pyramids bigger than the ones in Egypt along the Missouri River, uh, made of earth, mm-hmm. not of stone, but the same engineering, <clears throat> that um, the languages were, uh, didn't have gender. People were people. What a what a great concept that yeah, is, you know, yeah, right? Absolutely. And didn't didn't have a word for nature because we were not separate from nature. From nature, the whole paradigm of society was the circle, not the hierarchy or pyramid. Very very sophisticated, and in fact, our constitution is patterned after the Iroquois Confederacy, which was uh, a group of six huge nations in in North America. But we, you know, we don't learn that. So, no. uh, you know, I, I mean, we learn it somewhat more than we did when I was growing up, but still not very much. So the, it was for me, the women in uh, the in Indian country who were part of the women's movement, who taught me that everything we want once was here. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, not that we yeah. can go to the past, but that, that we can we're more likely to move forward if we understand that it's possible. It's not the way we are now, the hierarchical way we are now is not inevitable. It's not human nature. Yeah. And I, you know, learning more about Wilma and, and even just learning in the book, you know, the other thing that I had no idea happened was the 1977 women's conference in Houston, Texas, where there were representation of women from everywhere, including Indian nations. Yes, yes. Because it was um, begun by uh, Bella Abzug and Shirley Chisholm and Mm -hmm. Patsy Mink and, you know, women in Congress who put together this bill that called for what amounts to a constitutional convention Mm -hmm. for women since we weren't present at the first one and made sure that it was representative by uh, race and economics and so on. You know, it's perhaps the most representative group that this country has ever turned out. 
out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And it and it brought the movement together on issues. There there were huge numbers of people in each state and territory, women who voted on issues and voted for their representatives. And then those 2,000 elected representatives met in Houston. Yeah, amazing. Amazing. Never never knew about it until I read the book. Well, that's not, you know, I mean, it it, it was never properly covered in the press. Yeah. Uh, so I, 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 there are a couple of books being written about it now, so okay. perhaps we will begin to learn about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was a, a great example of democracy at its finest. Yes, it was. And, and part of the problem was that there was a uh, very, very right-wing counter-conference in Houston at the same time. Huh. And though that counter-conference was elected by no one, Mm-hmm. Uh, it nonetheless was given e- an equal amount of coverage Got it. by the press, and Got that was a problem. It. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's, you know, you've lived by all means an extraordinary life, um, both on the road and at home and through your writing and and through your, your speaking. And so we'll sort of kind of end the the interview on what do you feel was a big high point in your life regardless of what it's about but something that that you feel was something that was very meaningful and I'm sure there's many but well it was I mean we've just been talking about the Houston conference that was the biggest collective uh, event, mm-hmm. um, the, the, the highest high, I would say. But other than that, I, there, it's mostly small moments. You know, when you, you meet somebody in the street or in an airport and they stop and tell you their story of, of having made some significant change in their lives. And, um, you know, it's here, it's hearing people's story. Yeah. And, uh, and also, I have to say that since I live in the future, I don't think about what <laughs> was the highest point in the past because I'm utterly hooked on thinking what could be. Mm. So I literally live in the future. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I think having all those small stories, like you said, of people coming up to you and, and there was one in the book that I loved and it was the couple on their way to Sturgis. Oh yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Oh my the gosh. motorcycle rider. Yeah. The yeah. big motorcycle. Yeah. yeah. That was great. Yeah. That's the, I, I'm, I'm glad you, that you remember that because mm. I plucked that out as the most representative of the whole book and mm-hmm. put it in the, in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, it, it I guess it's sort of never judge a book by its cover, that sort of old adage. Um, but I just found that the that conversation between you and the husband and the wife, um, and so people, if you really want to know, you just have to listen to it or read the book because it's great, was was just seemed like so sweet mm-hmm. and genuine no, and, it's so, and special. Yeah. It was such a lesson in, in what seems to be one thing from a distance is yeah. very different close up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I thought that was such a great story. Um, anyway, we are just about out of time, but I, I want to thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast and sharing your stories and, and sharing your stories in the book as well. 
Well, I, I've enjoyed it, and now I'm really hooked on discovering what happens at your conference next year. I, because I bet if you signed up, uh, you know, 50 women and men who said, hello there, we're not coming unless it's more representative, it would work. Yeah. And, you know, I put out a, a little challenge to everyone that's going to come out on my podcast tomorrow. But in, and this is just as a quick side note, but the, the conference has been going on for 15 years. Not once has there ever been a female keynote speaker. Uh-huh. How's That's that ridiculous. In, in, a, in a mostly female yeah. profession. Yeah. All I right. I, I would possible. say you're on so very we, firm ground. Yeah. So we put out a challenge <laughs> to say, listen, there's got to be one woman. Yes. And you might, you might give them a list of, of, of yes. women who would be good at it so that That's they the have even less excuse. Yes, that's the plan. That was the challenge put out there to the listeners. So, fingers crossed. I I don't even I don't I don't even think I have to say fingers crossed. I think it's going to happen. Mm. No, we'll see. That's great. And that's yeah. how come I live in the future. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you again so much for coming on and um I really it was an honor. Thank you. No, I really enjoyed it. It's nice to talk to you again. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. And everybody, thanks so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.